0: Whether you're here in person or you're watching online this morning, we invite you to take your Bible and open it to John chapter number six, the Gospel of John chapter number six. Uh, thankful for so many who are able to be here this morning, which uh, wouldn't be possible without uh, our community that has been so faithful to uh, make sure the roads are uh, are better and we're able to, to drive on them. Thankful uh, to our mayor and our city. Thankful to our uh, community and the many volunteers that uh, work so tirelessly and uh, have made uh, us able to be able to be here this morning. And so to those of you uh, that that represents, thank you, thank you uh, on behalf of our church. We are grateful to be here uh, this morning. For those who are at home, uh, we know there's still some danger out there, so we're glad that you're also able to be with us online. John chapter 6, we've been in a series called Come and See. We've been studying through the gospel of John so that we can live like Jesus. That first invitation that Jesus gave to his disciples is the same invitation that he still gives us today. And that invitation is simple. Come and see. Now this morning, we're in the second part of a discussion that Jesus is having with a crowd in John chapter 6. Now, I'm not going to preach last week's sermon. If you missed it or need to get caught up, you can go to fbcsaltilla.org, or you can find our podcast, or you can go to our YouTube channel, and you can listen or watch whatever it was that you missed from last week. However, I do want to make sure that we're all on the same page for our study of Scripture this morning, since we're jumping back into a conversation that has previously been been started, I want to make sure uh, that we're all good with what Jesus is saying. Now, here's what we know. Up until this point, Jesus has fed thousands of people with just a few fish and a few loaves. The people who ate the bread that Jesus provided, who witnessed the miracle, continue to seek him because they want to continue to be fed by him. However, Jesus reveals to them that they need more than physical food, right? They need spiritual food food. He compares himself to bread. Now, more than the way that we need bread, more than the way that we need food to survive physically, we need Jesus, the bread of life, to survive spiritually. Now, he uses a metaphor to help them understand their need for him. He uses it to help us understand our need for him. Our dependence has to be on Jesus. And when they miss his message... He takes the metaphor even deeper to show us exactly what he's trying to explain, and that's where I want us to jump in this morning. So in your Bible, John chapter 6, we're going to begin reading with verse number 41. I would certainly encourage you, if you have a pen and a piece of paper, uh, to get the notes ready. What we are about to dive into will be heavy content this morning. So John chapter 6. Verse number 41, let's see what Jesus continues to do. So the Jews grumbled about him, talking about Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Father, what an interesting passage of Scripture for today. God, we pray right now as we spend some time in your Word that you will illuminate, that, God, you will inspire us, that, Father, you will show us exactly what you would have for us to learn so that we can leave this place in obedience to you. Jesus, this time is yours. Speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, that was a lot of verses, I will admit it, and some of those verses are a little hard to understand. I hope as you read this or as you were listening this morning, you were maybe a little confused or maybe a little shocked by what you heard from the Scripture. If that is you this morning, then it might make you think of an activity that I think about often when I read this passage of Scripture. It's an activity that our students do during Disciple Now weekend. In case you didn't know, that was last weekend. And I was thinking about how on Friday night, those small groups for Disciple Now weekend compete against each other in a series of relay races called Mega Relay. Now, if you've never experienced this with our students, let me just help you get a picture of it the best I can. This event consists of 37 relays to be done as quickly and as accurately, although some groups ignore that principle. It consists of 37 relays to be done as quickly as possible. The team who does all 37 relays the fastest wins. Now, I bring this up because some of these relays are a little confusing. In other words, if uh, I was to share these with you, you might need a little bit more explanation than just what you read or what you hear. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here's one of them. This is called chariot race. Here's what you have to do for this relay. Two people bend over while two more stand in front of them holding them in a headlock while one person rides on the people bent over and the entire team runs to one side of the gym and back. Few question marks on your faces, that's good. That's what I need you to be experiencing right now. Here's another one, this one's called the transport belt. Team lays down and begins rolling while the person at the end moves across them one by one till the entire team reaches the other side of the gym. I really wanted to get a few people up here to show us what this actually looks like uh, this morning, but I decided not to. Or how about this one? This one's called the amoeba run. Half the team is in the middle and the rest are holding hands in a circle around the ones in the middle and they run to one side of the gym and Back. Now listen, you may read those or hear those and think, you know what, Danny, I need a little bit more explanation than what you just read to me. As a matter of fact, a visual might be a little helpful. Or some of them might make you think, I'm a little confused by what you just shared with me. They might make you think, you know what, I'm a little shocked by what you just shared with me. In fact, some of them that I might share with you might make you look to the person next to you and say, did he just say they did what I think he just said they did? Right, let me give you a couple of examples. Here's one, it's called the Vaseline race. That should make you start questioning already. Each member will put Vaseline on their nose and pass a cotton ball one to the other. That's right. It may shock you a little bit, but I read what I read, and they did what they did. Let me give you another one. This one's called the cup pass. Team passes a cup only using their mouths. This is the rim of the cup being passed to the next person, but you can only pass it with the rim of the cup in your mouth. It's just, I know, I'm sorry. Yes, your student did that uh, this past weekend. Or this one, one of my favorites. It's called straw and water. Team will fill up a cup with water from straws to be filled one by one, and then one person must drink the cup of water. Here's what that looks like. You start on one end, you suck up some drink in a straw, you run to the other side and spit it out of the straw, and you fill up that cup one by one. The very last person has to drink whatever water is in the cup at the other end. I will not confirm nor deny that this happened uh, this past weekend, but I hope as you hear some of these, your mind goes, you know what, Danny, I'm a little confused by some of these. I need a little bit more of an explanation. Or others you hear and you think, you know what, I'm a little shocked by what you just said to me. I'm not sure that I believe you. I need to take a second look. Now listen, here's what you may not know. You may hear about this relay, and it may seem like chaos, and it certainly is, but you may think it has no plan or no purpose. You may think that it's shocking and confusing, and that you're not sure what's happening there, and you certainly should feel that way until you realize what actually has to be done. There is a process in what seems like madness. Now, like this relay, When we read what happens in John chapter six, we are too tempted to get lost in all the mess and miss the message. We can get so bogged down in the metaphor that we miss the meaning. Jesus isn't talking like a crazy person. He isn't trying to confuse us. Instead, he's showing us a process that God will put in place to take hopeless people and provide them with help. He uses a metaphor as he does often to explain something. Yes, complex. Yes, confusing. Yes, even challenging, but without a doubt crucial for each of us today. You say, Danny, what are you talking about? Well, the progression begins with what I like to call the problem of man. This is what I would think of as because of man, we are lost that's every person in this room. That's why it gives us a greater picture when we look at Jesus in this conversation and the Jews that were grumbling. Look back at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. What's their problem? They don't understand how he could come from heaven. They know his father, Joseph. They know his mother, Mary. How, from this guy who was born in Galilee, how can he say he's come down from heaven? And Jesus, knowing their grumbling, says, do not grumble amongst yourselves. Now the word used for Jews is probably a reference to the leaders of the synagogue in Capernaum. May not be referring to the entire crowd, but yet those who are leaders in their religious efforts. We know this because when the crowd finds Jesus, according to verse number 59, they find him at the synagogue teaching in Capernaum. So these Jews, religious leaders who are grumbling, gives us a picture of the complaining that's circulating amongst the crowd. That's what the people were doing. They were complaining about what Jesus just Said. How could this boy that they all knew, that they all saw grow up, that they knew the parents of, how could he be from heaven? And their complaining as earlier in this conversation still reminds us of how they're missing what Jesus is trying to show them. In fact, listen to me. This isn't the first time that people missed what Jesus was showing them. You can go all the way back to Genesis, by the way, in the very beginning of time, and you will notice people missing what God is trying to show them. Them, but in Jesus's case, even just in the gospel of John, if you go back to John chapter two, Jesus compares himself to the temple. They miss what Jesus was showing them and they're not very happy about it. If you go back to John chapter 5, Jesus compares himself to the Sabbath. Once again, they miss what Jesus was showing them and they're not very happy about it. You can even go to other gospel accounts and when Jesus speaks, it often makes people grumble. Let me give you a couple of examples. Mark chapter 6, it's on the Sabbath and Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. By the way, that's the same thing he's doing here in John chapter 6. He's teaching in the synagogue. And here's what Mark tells us, many heard him and were astonished. Here's what they said. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Listen to what they said. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And listen to what they did. They took offense at Jesus, there they are, grumbling again because of something that he taught. Or in Luke chapter 4, says, All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But shortly after that, listen to what happens. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. This is their response to Jesus. This isn't the first time that people are grumbling and complaining. This isn't the first time that people are offended by what Jesus is saying. The fact that they grumbled about Jesus just better shows us what we're like without him. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Without Jesus, we're broken. We're lost. We're without hope and all we can do is crumble and complain and stir about in our own sinfulness. Can I just give you a picture that makes this even more clear? Jesus in this entire conversation with this crowd is comparing himself to Moses and what happened in the day in which Moses provided manna from heaven to the people. Around him. It makes sense for John to bring this out because it's the context in which this entire discussion is happening. Jesus compares himself to Moses and the comparison of God's provision of manna and his provision of Jesus, the bread of life, come down from heaven. Now, in this comparison, The people of Jesus' day complain about what he's saying. Do you know why it's interesting? Because in the day of Moses, when this same thing was happening, guess what they did? They also complained and grumbled. Listen to this from Exodus 16. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They would rather go back to the slavery then continue on in the wilderness. Then when God gives them manna from heaven, when he provided them with bread, they grumble again because they're tired of the bread and they want meat. Listen to this from Numbers 11. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Regardless of what God did, they found a new way to complain, something else to grumble about. They found a new way to be angry at Jesus. Listen to this. No matter how much God did, no matter how much he blessed or provided, they were still broken. They were still lost. They still rejected, turned back. They still looked to something else rather than God. Friend, this is true of all of us. When left on our own, we go back to sin because it's all we know. Doesn't matter how much God has done for us or blessed us or provided for us. We always try to fix things ourselves. We always try to seek something other than God. We always go back to our problem. We always go back to sinful man to seek a solution that is as broken as our sinfulness. Friend, because of man, because of our own sinfulness, we are lost. The picture of that complaining crowd, which we've seen from the beginning of this conversation, is a picture of all of mankind without Jesus. This is the problem of man. We're lost on our own with no hope of being found. As a matter of fact, the Bible describes our hopelessness on many occasions. Listen to this from Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Listen to this from Isaiah Chapter 64. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind. Take us away. Listen to this from Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or how about this one from Romans 3, 23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friend, listen to me. According to Ephesians chapter 2, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. According to Romans 8, we're unable to please God. According to Romans 6, we're slaves to sin under its control. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural person, that's us, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually Discerned. Friend, I don't know if you caught this, but the Bible couldn't be more clear. The problem of man is we are lost without hope. Now, I know it's a cold morning and you are hoping to come into this building to feel something warm and reassuring. I apologize that that is not what you have received so far, but it's the truth. And we certainly can't hear the good news without first hearing. The bad news, their grumbling and confusion and complaining is a picture of all people apart from Jesus. Please don't miss the first piece to this progression. There is a problem with mankind. It's called sin, and because of man, we're lost, we're broken, we're sinful. But friend, listen, it gets better. The progression continues. It starts with the problem of man, but it doesn't end there, praise God. What starts with the problem of man moves to what I like to call the plan of God. Certainly because of man, we are lost. But friends, because of God, we are found. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Look back at verse 44 in John chapter six. Listen to what Jesus tells him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And, look at this, I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to to me. Keep going. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Jesus goes on. He says, hey, that food that your fathers ate that came down from heaven, they ate it and still died. But guess what? With me, the bread of life from heaven, you will never die. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What's the bread, Jesus? He tells us And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You know what Jesus is talking about here? don't get caught up in the mess that you miss the message Jesus is talking about, the plan of God to deal with the problem of man. We could never be made right with God on our own. Matter of fact, listen to this from Romans 3 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Friend, there is no work we can do. We're dead in sin. Think about it like this, to expect a sinner to desire salvation or provide it would be like expecting a corpse to run a marathon. We've already talked about this, but man can't save himself. We need help, and thank God. He did what we could not do. He made a way, a plan for us to be made right with him. He gave us bread, not like the physical men from heaven that only lasted for a short time and still resulted in death. No, the bread that came down from heaven, Jesus will produce eternal life. Friend, we couldn't produce that kind of bread. That's why Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is why he said back in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is why he said back in verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last Day. I love how Jim Shaddix puts this truth that we find in John chapter 6. He references John chapter 15 and tells us we didn't choose Jesus, Jesus chose us. He references John 14 that Jesus gives us back the life of God that we were created to have. He references John 10 and promises to preserve us forever. He references John chapter 1 when Jesus said, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's how we are saved. Or what about John chapter 5 verse 21? For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Listen to how Shaddix puts it. God is solely and sovereignly responsible for every aspect of our salvation. He even gives us the faith to believe so that no one steals his glory. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Ephesians two, listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. Guess what? You can't do it, but it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Friend, we are the problem. But God has the plan. The plan is God will save. It's his work, not ours. Now, we commonly refer to this as the doctrine of election. I don't want to get too deep into this because I don't think it matters that much for our conversation this morning. But if anyone ever tells you that election isn't in the Bible, friend, listen to me, they're wrong. It's all throughout the Bible. God clearly teaches us about election. Now, some understand the doctrine of election as God choosing who will be saved and who won't. God chooses who will be saved and who won't. You might have heard this called Calvinism before. Or some understand the doctrine of election as God allowing each person to decide on their own whether or not they will be saved. You might have heard this called Arminianism. Now, listen, there are many other things that we could talk about when it comes to the doctrine of election. But here's what I want to do this morning. I just want us to focus on what we learned from Jesus in this moment. And it's something that none of us can deny, regardless of what we understand about the doctrine of election. Here it is Apart from the plan of God, we can't be saved. Friend, listen to me, it's because of ourselves it's because of our sinfulness that we're lost and left to ourselves. We have no hope. We are dead in our sins, but it's because of God, nothing else, not me, not you, not anything that we did or didn't do. It's because of God that we are found. We are certainly the problem, but God has the plan. I can't overstate it enough. God's grace mercy. His plan is why we can be saved. It's by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. It is the gift of God. He is the one who draws us to Him. He is the one who gives us to the Son, because He is the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. He alone deserves honor and praise. And worship, Friend, the progression starts with the problem of man. We are lost. But praise God, what starts with us as the problem leads to God with a plan. He decided to act to save us from our sins. But there's one more piece to the progression. The problem of man has been dealt with by the plan of God. But you want to know how it's dealt with by the plan of God? Through the provision of Jesus because of Jesus we're never lost again look back at verse 52 let's wrap up what's happening in the chaos of this moment the Jews then disputed among themselves saying how can this man give us flesh to eat haven't you often wondered why would Jesus tell us to eat his flesh and drink his blood that is simply gross So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see any similarities there? He talks about being raised up on the last day before, but he doesn't use the phrase, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He says, comes to me and believes in me. He's making a comparison there. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is wrapping this up in this conversation with the crowd. He's saying, listen, because of man, we are lost. Because of God, we are found. But because of Jesus, we will never be lost again. He is the provision we must all receive. Now, I want to dive into something for just a moment because we certainly can't ignore the countless scriptures that clearly state that God is the one who initiates salvation. If you want to argue with it, I will give you my notes because maybe you missed the last point about God alone being our, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We cannot ignore that God is the one who initiates salvation. But friend, listen to me. We also can't ignore the countless scriptures that clearly state we must believe, we must follow, we must surrender, we must choose to come to Jesus to consume the bread of life. Jesus began his public ministry by proclaiming, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The apostles who lived with him 24-7 for three years apparently adopted that same conviction because on the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted from Joel 2-32 when he announced that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. On Solomon's porch, he preached that people must repent therefore and turn back that their sins may be blotted out out, Paul evidently reached the same conclusion because he told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he announced to the men of Athens that God himself commands all people everywhere to repent. I don't know if you pick up on this theme, but it seems like a lot of choice is involved in salvation. But don't miss this, believers, listen to me. Not only do unbelievers have to respond to the gospel in order to be saved, but believers have to respond to the gospel truth in order to grow in Christ's likeness. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, don't miss the many New Testament commands that logically imply the demand for a response on the part of the readers. Don't they suggest that a decision has to be made whether or not to obey? Friend, listen, they're not forced to obey. It's a decision that we make every single day. Will I follow after Jesus? Will I obey his ways? When I consume the bread, when I spend time in the Word, and God shows me what's next, do I do it or do I not? Will I surrender my will so that his will can be done? Will I eat the bread of life? Listen, even in the context of this discussion, Jesus uses language like back in verse 37 when he said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You hear that? Will you come to Jesus, obedience on your part? Or what about in John chapter six, verse 40, a few verses earlier, everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. Well, friend, is that you? Will you look on the son and believe In him, listen, absolutely salvation begins with God. We can't be saved apart from him making a way and drawing us to himself. The spirit of God must call you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He saves us through his son who sacrificed himself for us. I definitely believe in the doctrine of election. However, I'm not convinced that God chooses some and not others. But I am convinced that God chooses Jesus to offer salvation to all who will believe in him. As Jesus will later say in John chapter 12, verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Friends, I believe that's what God has done through Jesus He's drawing a sinful, lost, and broken world. He is drawing our problem out with his plan through provision in Jesus Christ. I love what John Phillips says about the matter. Listen to this. He says, God does not arbitrarily and sovereignly damn the greater part of the human race into an existence they did not seek. "...on terms they did not select, under impossible handicaps they did not choose, dominated by forces they cannot control, into a ruined family they did not themselves plunge into original sin, just in order arbitrarily to send people to hell for not choosing a salvation offered only to the elect." That may be some people's idea of God and some people's view of salvation, but such concepts make God out to be a tyrant worse than any in the history of the human race. Whatever is to be said about the sovereignty of God and human salvation, God never sets up arbitrary, impossible, and wholly unobtainable terms for coming to Christ. Nor does he violate our moral accountability by ravishing anyone's human will in certain cases of grace. Now maybe you're thinking, well, Danny, which way is it? Does God choose or do I choose? Well, friend, I hate to put it to you like this, but it's both. I know you're thinking, Danny, I'm not sure how it can be one way and the other at the same time. I'm not either. Here's all I can really tell you, and it's the same answer that Charles Spurgeon, the preacher of all preachers, would give you if you were to ask him to reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility in choosing salvation. Here's what he says. I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. Let me just tell you this. I don't have the explanation or the understanding of how this fully works. What I know is we couldn't save ourselves, so God made a way through Jesus. However, that way must also be received by each of us. That's why Jesus's metaphor of bread makes so much sense. You see, the Jews only heard that they must eat the flesh of Jesus. All they thought about was he telling me that I need to be a cannibal. Is he telling me that I need to drink his blood? But the words of Jesus, when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, are really to be understood in one of three ways. Let me help you with it. Here's the first one. Is John speaking in sacramental terms? In other words, is he referring to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or communion or what some call the Eucharist? When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, are we actually eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking the blood of Jesus? Some call this transubstantiation, that when we observe the Lord's Supper, we are really eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Is he talking about sacramental terms? Secondly, is John speaking in metaphorical terms? Is eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood simply a metaphor to represent to us fully accepting the life of Jesus as our own? Is it sacramental? Is it metaphorical? Or is it both sacramental and metaphorical? Though the text is primarily metaphorical, some suggest it has sacramental purpose. Now let me just give you for me. I find myself leaning to the metaphorical meaning from John. I'm not willing to say that there's no sacramental language used by John, but I will say this. The Lord's Supper has not been instituted yet. Jesus has not spent his final hour with his disciples. And so I don't know that he's referencing that, even though John is writing after that fact. But here's what I am willing to say that we should think of this text in metaphorical terms as we seek to apply this scripture to our daily lives. I love what D.A. Carson wrote. Listen to these words. Eating the flesh of the Son of Man is a striking metaphorical way of saying that the gift of God's real bread of life is appropriated by faith. We must appropriate him into our inmost being. This metaphor, this thought of eating is something that we may be more familiar with than what we realize. We devour books, we drink in lectures, we swallow stories, we ruminate on ideas, we chew over a matter, we eat our own words. In fact, many grandparents may have declared before that they could eat up their grandchildren. Do we think that they're implying that they would actually devour their flesh? I surely hope not. Or as John Phillips writes, listen to this. It is evident that the coming and believing of verse 35 mean the same as eating and drinking in verses 51 and 54. Since they have the same blessing attached to them that he will raise us up on the last day. When we come to Christ and believe in him, we receive into our souls the benefits of his body and blood offered for us on the cross of Calvary. The Jews use the expression often, eat and drink, in a figurative way to denote the operation of the mind in receiving and inwardly digesting truth. This is what Jesus is referring to. He seems to be dealing with a crowd of people, mostly people who aren't committed to him. So this discussion seems likely to help them understand the comparison between Jesus and Moses. And in that sense, Jesus is Better, And in the same way that God provided for the people in the wilderness through the manna from heaven, this is the same way that God longs to provide for people now through Jesus. Let me give you an even better picture of what Jesus is communicating. Do you remember that first Passover meal? Do you remember the days of Moses when the people of Israel were exodusing from the slavery in Egypt? Do you remember what they did on that final plague? They took a lamb without spot, and without blemish, and they slaughtered that lamb, and they put the blood on the doorposts of their house, and that blood set them free from the power of the death angel who would come and take the life of their firstborn child, but that wasn't it. They had to take that lamb that was slaughtered and they had to roast its body. And the family that night, before the death angel came, after they had wiped the blood on the doorposts of their house, they consumed that entire sacrifice. They ate it. And if they didn't eat all of it, guess what they did? They burned the rest of it up. Why? So that the entire sacrifice was consumed. Jesus is using the same Passover, Metaphor. He's using that as a picture of what he will be as the perfect Passover lamb. His blood shed to cover our sin. His body broken so that we could have new life through him. Friends, he's not talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He's talking about a total consummation of all that Jesus is to take his life as our. Jesus is asking us if we will take in his death and his blood that will be shed for us. He's asking us, will we rely on him as we rely on food? Will we consume or take in Jesus as all that we need? Friend, listen to me. Apart from that kind of dependence and surrender to Jesus, we can't have the life he offers. When I read this moment in scripture, and every time I read it, I'm oftentimes reminded of creation. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, God created a garden. He created a man and he created a woman. And he placed them in the garden to live in perfection with him. Can I just remind you of something? The man could do nothing, he didn't create the garden. He didn't create himself or the woman. He had no work in the matter of creation. It was all given, provided by God. Think about that when you think about salvation. You could do nothing. God is the one who worked it all. But God did give them a choice in the garden. He told them that what they could eat and what they couldn't eat, and they could choose to obey him or to dis obey him. They could trust him or they could place their trust in themselves. We know what happened. They chose to disobey. How? They chose to eat from the fruit that led to death. Now, through Jesus, God again sets forth the plan we couldn't any more deal with our sinfulness than the first man and woman could create themselves. It was all an act on God's part. He provided the place, the people, the plan, so God does it again. But listen to me, this time, he also gives a choice. This time, it's not about eating fruit, but about eating flesh. Are you going with me? This time, it's not to bring sin into the world, but to cast sin out. This time, he offers the world his son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for their sin. Will you choose to follow Jesus? Listen, the entire Bible might seem like a a massive mega relay that's been going on since the beginning of time. Matter of fact, so many things may seem like chaos, may seem like a mess, but God has a message. God has a plan. And once you understand the plan, you can follow Jesus. Friend, what about you today? As you think about these words of Jesus to this crowd, you could certainly get lost in all the words that he uses. You could certainly get lost in the metaphor and miss The message that he has for us. You can certainly think about his flesh and his blood and be grossed out by the fact that you have to eat it. You can be like those Jewish leaders in that conversation who are grumbling and complaining and still missing what Jesus is trying to do. As a matter of fact, friend, listen, you might be here today. And you are just like Adam and Eve back in that garden. And when it's left to you, there's a problem. You want to know why? Because sin has left us all broken. And if you continue to try to do it on your own, you will never succeed. But thank God he didn't leave us in our problem, but he gave us a plan. That plan was life through Jesus. His body had to be broken. His blood had to be shed, not just so that we could be saved from the penalty of sin, but that we could also be free from the power of sin. So friend, listen to me, are you here today? And if you left here without receiving Jesus, you would pay the penalty for your sin because you have not accepted the one who died for you. Friend, if that's you, Jesus would say, why not today? Surrender it all. Take me in. My flesh, my blood, receive me as the perfect Passover lamb who died in your place. But also wonder who's here this morning. And you say, Danny, I know Jesus. Well, he would still say to you, is my flesh, my blood still not enough for you? Are you feeding on something else? You finding your source of life from something else? If you are, that's why you still feel broken. He's given us everything that we need, the plan, the provision. The problem can be eliminated, not just the penalty of sin, but it's power over your life every day. You say, Danny, how? Feed on the word that he's given us. Live in the truth that he's revealed to us. Find your satisfaction in the one who offers it all. Will you today take in Jesus? Will you today commit to following the one who deserves our following? Will you today say, Jesus, I want you. The relay's on, friends. Will we follow Jesus to reach the finish line? There is no other way. Jesus alone. Listen, today in just a few moments, I'm going to pray and I'm going to walk back to that lobby and I'm going to be standing around twiddling my thumbs just like this and I would love nothing more than to receive someone who wants to give their life to Jesus. I'd love to open my Bible and tell you how you can begin walking with Him. I'd love nothing more to pray with somebody who says, Danny, I've been feeding on something else. I've been trying to find satisfaction in something other than Jesus. Hey, listen, I'll be back there just like this. I'll be singing with you probably not looking at the words, and so I'll just be kind of mumbling them, fake singing. trying not to let anybody distract me who wants to talk about something else back there. Hint, hint, leave me alone. And if you want to talk about Jesus, you need somebody to pray with you. I'd love in those moments to talk to you about Christ. Listen, let me pray. You respond as Jesus desires for you to respond. Father, we love you. Jesus, you're awesome. Thank you so much.